as I said on Friday night, what I hoped to be able to help you to do was to feel that you had a good understanding of what of what enlightenment is all about, what these words awakening, enlightenment, liberation are referring to, uh, and what the path is like, and what the stages is like, and maybe you removed enough of the confusion and demystified it so that you could make a determination whether or not this was something that you wanted to aspire to personally in your life. And uh, so far, we have a little time yet to go, so uh, to the degree that I haven't succeeded yet, that's, that's what I want to keep working on. Okay. Um, this is a journey. And you can regard uh, complete enlightenment, Buddhahood, Ahatship, as being the, the top of a mountain. That's how it's often described. It's a mountain with many sides, so there's many paths up that mountain. And the destination, the goal, the top of the mountain, is something that you can't really know and understand until you get there. And so you have to accept that. And so because of that, it's more important to focus on the journey, not the destination. Right? Mm-hmm. And you've heard that before. So if you choose to make the journey, there are many paths you can follow. And you want to keep your focus on the journey and not the destination. The fact that there are stages of enlightenment, that you can become a stream enterer, and there's still a lot of journey to go, in a way that's a good thing. Because it's all about the journey and the ultimate destination is just beyond the reaches of what you can really comprehend anyway. What's important about stream entry is that at that point, two things. There's no falling back from that point. And the other thing is it gets much easier past that point. Everything gets much easier past that. But other than those two things, the journey from where you are to stream entry is not especially different than the journey from stream entry to Buddhahood. It's the journey that counts. All of the same basic uh, processes, ingredients, everything else are the same. It's you're continuing the same process of refinement, both. Uh, as an Aryan, that means a noble person who has reached stream entry, uh, as you are, uh, as a, a, a worldling, one who still is at risk of falling back, and one for whom 
the, the steps on the journey still tend to be rather steep. Okay. Now, to be a Buddha is to be free from suffering and to have a kind of happiness that does not depend on external circumstances at all. And why do Buddhas get out of bed in the morning? So, what's that? To teach others. To teach others, yes. They don't get out of bed in the morning to say, ah, another day where it doesn't matter that the sun's golden light is shining on the leaves, because I'd be happy if it wasn't. (laughs) It doesn't matter if there's a fresh smell of rain in the air or or the crisp coolness, because those things don't matter to me anyway. (laughs) That's right. But Buddha gets out of bed in the morning out of compassion for those who are still suffering. So, if you, for anyone who decides to make this journey, the best way to do it is to emulate the Buddha. That's sort of like keeping your eye on the on the top of the mountain, keeping your eye on the goal. So emulate the Buddha in every way you can. But while you keep your eye on the top of the mountain, you have to take into account where your feet are on the mountain. Right? So that's, this is how you want to proceed. Now, okay, you decide to make this journey. How do we emulate the Buddha? Okay. Do we say, well, I really want to be free of suffering and happy. Is that really emulating the Buddha? Mm-mm. No. It's okay. So how can we how can we take that aspect of it and emulate the Buddha? Let's let's look beyond ourselves at the world that we're in right now. What what is the nature of this world? Hmm? Suffering, yeah. It's filled with suffering beings. And what are they doing? Perpetuating their suffering. What's that? Perpetuating their suffering. Perpetuating their suffering, absolutely. But what do they think they're doing while they're perpetuating their suffering? Trying to be happy. They're trying to be happy. Well, so we live in a world of people who are so deluded that they're perpetuating their suffering and they think they're trying to make themselves happy. <laughs> so, and we, we, we see the problem there. And we see that we share that same problem. Because while we're an unenlightened being ourselves, we are also perpetuating our own suffering. To the degree that we've gained some understanding uh, we might not be doing that to the same degree, hopefully, <laughs> but it doesn't change the fact that we're still suffering and we're still vulnerable to unhappiness, uh, to external causes, and we're still deluded. 
We need to keep working on ourselves. But if we look at why, why, why this is going on in the world, the nature of the delusion, I mean, it's clear that it's clear that people are deluded, and because of their deluded delusion, their goal is to is to escape their own suffering and make themselves happy but it's having just the opposite effect. Mm -hmm. So, if we look at the Buddha and then we look at other people, uh, then we say, okay, now I want to become enlightened, part of which is being free from suffering and, and, and being happy. But if I focus on that, I'm not really being like the Buddha. I'm being more like everybody else. And I'm still deluded, so if I focus on making this journey for the sake of making myself happy and ending my suffering, there's a good chance I'm going to make a lot of the same mistakes that everybody else is making um, for the same reasons. A lot of reason that people suffer and what can get in the way of your progress on this journey is as long as you believe in a self and you have all of this accumulated conditioning in the background, there are parts of your mind that don't think yourself deserves to be free from suffering. Is that right? Very much. And don't think that yourself deserves to be happy. And as we've discussed before, um, it's sometimes easier to wish for the happiness of other beings than it is for yourself. And as a matter of fact, it's good to always remember what Shanti Deva said, because it is so true that the sum total of all the happiness in the world is the result of people trying to make other people happy. And the sum total of all the suffering in the world is a result of people trying to make themselves happy. Okay? So while we know that if we <laughs> succeed in this journey, we are going to be free from suffering and happy, let's not make our personal freedom from suffering and happiness the primary goal. If we do, we're creating, we're further reinforcing the sense of selfhood that we understand is part of the obstacle. And we're also setting ourselves up so that any conditioning that we have that doesn't believe we deserve that is going to get in our way. And in, in general, we know it's not a very workable thing. Now, we're in a world full of people who want happiness for themselves and are going about it in the wrong way. What's the best way that we could help them? What's that? Become clearer ourselves. Yes. Actually, to become happier and more at peace mm-hmm. and to suffer less ourselves. Hmm. Now, isn't that interesting? <laughs> we can become free from suffering and happy for the sake of other beings. <laughs> now, isn't that an interesting idea? So that other people can see that we are not so vulnerable to the vicissitudes of life and that we have an inner peace and happiness 
and then they just might say, what are you doing? How, how, how is this that uh, these things happen to you and, and uh, they don't upset you the way they do other people? They create an interest. Yeah. In, in Yiddish, there's a, a term called a mitzvah, mm-hmm. which is the highest blessing. And, and the, the highest blessing is when you do something for someone else and they don't know you've done it. So there isn't any credit in it. it it's just for the love. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's a wonderful thing, isn't it? So, how how would you apply that to what we're discussing right now? Well, I, I think raising the consciousness. Since we're all one, when we raise our consciousness, we're raising all of the consciousness. That's, I agree with that, yeah, that's for sure. And so it's a way to give a blessing uh, if you truly want it for others and you're doing it without getting credit or their knowledge. Yes. Or you don't care whether you get credit or not. And you don't care whether they know or not. It's not separate. Right. <laughs> it's not like you have to go out of your way to hide it. Mm-hmm. But it's you not just you, you just make that unimportant. You make that irrelevant. Uh, and as a matter of fact, as a part of the learning process, it probably is good sometimes to try to do it in such a way that it's not obvious. You know. Yes. That uh, that taking the taking the perspective of the Hippocratic oath, which is to do no harm, so that whatever you do is to benefit others. I'm not sure how you turn this back on yourself. Because I think we harm ourselves. Oh yes, yes. And, um, right. Yeah. And they still got their business and they still got their insurance yeah. and they still got their problems. And if they deal more with themselves, maybe they could do less harm to others. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's absolutely true. Yeah, if they could see. But you know, their problem is that they are trying to make themselves happy and they're going about it in the wrong way. Exactly. Once again. Yeah. But, but is, isn't, aren't one of the Buddhist tenets do no harm, period? That is, do no harm, period. <laughs> And that's do no harm to others and do no harm to yourself. And part of the part of the challenge in keeping that is knowing when you're doing harm, recognizing when you're doing harm, and that's a skill. And you develop that if you if you adopt that tenet, then in the practice of it, at at first it may seem obvious, but in the practice of it, you begin to confront those situations that force you to ask the question that you wouldn't have before. Is this really beneficial 
or is it actually harmful in some way that I'm not, that I haven't before now been recognizing? Mm-hmm. And we touched on that with regard to other people in our discussions about uh, tough love and enabling. You know, mm-hmm. the same thing applies to ourselves. A, a lot of the things that we think we're doing for our own benefit are actually harmful to us. But in terms of how we go about being bodhisattvas, uh, a good place to start is just to set our motivation that what we're doing is not for our own sake, but rather let's make ourselves into an instrument for the benefit of others in such a way that even the pursuit of our own happiness is only for the sake and for the benefit of others. Now that's an interesting thing because if you do that, then when you find yourselves in those very ordinary situations of him or me, then all of a sudden it takes on a different perspective. Well, yes, this may benefit me, but if I'm, if the whole point of me becoming a happy being is to help others un- understand, then you know it. Then I can't do it in a way that is going to reinforce the mistaken views that, that uh, are already operating. <clears throat> we need. We don't need to change the motivation of everybody in the world to have a really profound fact, uh, impact on the way people behave in the world. But we need to make a very great change in people's understanding of how to fulfill that motivation. And the problem that we have, of course, is that human beings are very successful as a species on this planet. And it's con- the consequences of that are disastrous because human beings are busy trying to make themselves happy and avoid their suffering by accumulating more and more and more, so much more than what they need. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's not working. And then they, you know, in addition to what they're doing to the planet in order to protect themselves from perceived possibility of future suffering. I mean, you know, it's, it's very interesting to think about this thing of <clears throat> uh, how we live our lives, and, uh, acknowledging that we should live in the present. But there's this idea that, well, I have to look after myself in the future. Well, how much do you have to look after yourself in the future? And how much do you need? It's true you have to look after yourself in the future. I'm not disputing that. But how much do you need? You know, and uh, how do you know when to stop? And I, I would guess there's some of you out there that have been in that place for a while. You know, I won't even bother trying to guess at who you are, but it's you know. When do I stop? How much do I need? How much do I need to accumulate? 
and this is this is a, a real problem. But in the world at large, for most people, that question doesn't even exist. If there's more to be gotten, I don't have enough yet. I mean, I personally, I don't know about you, but it's hard for me to imagine why somebody with millions and millions of dollars more than they could ever possibly spend or their children could spend need multi-million dollar bonuses. You know? I mean, not, not getting into any of the other sides of it, it's just why do they need more? Or people that have a lot of money and, uh, you know, why do they need more? And it's trying to get inside their head, you know, why is it? Well, our whole society gears people towards accumulation and the desirability of accumulation, and it makes them feel like failures if they don't accumulate as much as everybody they went to school with or grew up with or the neighborhood they came from, right? In a way, you're lucky if you come from a poor neighborhood because you don't impose quite the same expectations on yourself. And so if you only become moderately wealthy, then you're a huge success. <laughs> but what society doesn't give anybody any idea at all is where to stop. And so it's just kind of open-ended. And you more and more and more. But if the accumulation of things is in one's belief system what's going to make them happy, and they keep accumulating, and they're still not happy. The tendency is to, when we have something and it doesn't work, the tendency is to do it harder right. rather than to do an alternative. Right. And so and, yeah. with something like that that doesn't have an end, I think they're, they're trying to be happy, and right. there's this fantasy or, or unconscious yeah. wish that eventually they're going to get to that point, and then finally they will be. I will be happy when... It, yeah. the, the wind always moves. Yeah. And, and it's also like uh, heroin addiction, too. Because when somebody gets money, it does make them happy for a while. And then when that happiness loses its edge, if they can succeed in getting some more happy, some more money, then they get some more happiness to go with it, right? So how can I treat depressed millionaires? Well, it's... Why are the heroin addicts out there who are using an amount of heroin every day that would kill 10 people and they don't get anywhere near the rush off of it that they did when the first time that they used it? <laughs> so, they, if money didn't provide some degree of temporary happiness, then we wouldn't have the problem that we do with, uh, you know, and the problem is not just that everybody in the world is making so much money, because the fact is it's a few people in the world have a lot of wealth uh, at the expense of a whole lot of people who have very little. Well, that's the other part of it, is that, you know, when the priority is put on your happiness and when you see accumulation as a means to bring about your happiness, uh, it has a very powerful, erosive effect on your concern for others and your compassion for others, you know. And it becomes very easy to adopt the attitude that, well, because I have it, I deserve it. Because they don't, they must not. And is that not a predominant attitude in this society? Mm -hmm. I mean, 
we've just seen a really interesting process where a leader of the country brings his attention that a huge number of people have limited access to health care and no health insurance. And then we see all the people with a lot of money in the country very resistant to changing that because they might have to give up a little bit of what they have. And underlying that is the attitude that if I'm rich, I deserve to be rich. Because if I didn't deserve to be rich, I wouldn't be rich. And if they're poor, well, it's their own fault. After all, I got rich. So, so it feels more like they feel that they earned it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And it's the method of how they earned it. And it doesn't matter. I mean, some of them worked terribly, terribly hard and did absolutely brilliant things that many other people could not possibly do. And they have the reward of it. But that's not the point. That's right, yeah. They're spiritually bankrupt, but they've got lots of money in the bank. So <clears throat> this is what we need to examine and say, okay, the world is in trouble, and the world is in trouble because it has a set of values that is based on uh, wrong ideas, uh, and it just it is ultimately not to work out. <clears throat> and... I don't know about you, but the best way that I could see to reduce enormously the amount of suffering in the world is if we could produce a shift away from uh, materialistic accumulation-related uh, values to enlightenment-oriented values. If people could be made aware that Freedom from suffering and happiness can be achieved by another means. Then, you know, and, and if they, to the degree they could be convinced of it, then there would be a shift in values and people would start acting in a different way. So, I think that this is, I, I would recommend to you that uh, you adopt enlightenment oriented values that you emulate Buddhas, understand as well as you can how Buddhas are, and emulate Buddhas, and, uh, and see if you can't become, uh, make yourself into an instrument for the realignment of the values of those around you. And of course, it's very important that you associate with others who have the same kind of values. As the group that you're a part of expands in size, the boundary that it has with those who have not yet adopted those, val those values increases as well, right? But uh, if we just imagine the increasing of a circle, uh, then it would seem like, well, there's a problem there because the volume of the circle, or, or, or the area of the circle increases much more rapidly than the circumference does. But that's not really how we are. 
we have contact with. It's it's more of a our sangha has more of a fractal surface. It's very irregular. It has a much larger boundary than just a simple circular line. So the larger our group becomes, the more people we come in contact and the more opportunity there is to spread these new kinds of values, which will motivate us tremendously. And it will give us the energy to continue our ascent. And the more we succeed in making our own personal ascent, the more powerful the effect that we will have on those around us. So, if you would like to save the world, (laughs) then the good place to start is right here in yourself. And so if the beginning point is seeing a world filled with suffering and beings who are perpetuating their suffering through misunderstandings and misconceptions, um, well, then the world that you perceive is a construct of your mind. If you perceive all of the suffering in a negative and critical way, then that's your own that's your own construct. But if you can say that, okay, it's due to causes and conditions that it is this way, that I see it this way, that I perceive it this way, and that it, it is up to me in the present to alter the causes and conditions for what I see in the future then you can begin the process of bringing about a transformation. Now, we look at uh, we, we look at Buddhas and we see that the Buddhas understand the emptiness of perceptions and they understand the, the emptiness of the perception of self. Now, where we are we might not necessarily be able to fully realize that truth, but we, to the degree that we can understand it, that's the degree that we should implement it. So if we take, if we can see that it is the attachment to self that is causing our own suffering, and it's really important that we see that as clearly as we can over and over again, So, you know, what that means is every time you find yourself unhappy at all, look inside and see, okay, how is it that my attachment to self, to the idea of being a separate self, is bringing this about? How much is my belief that things really are the way I see them responsible for my suffering and unhappiness? Now, sometimes it'll be really clear, and sometimes you'll be working against a lot of really strong past conditioning. And that's all right. You don't expect you don't expect yourself to actually be a Buddha before you get to the top of the mountain, right? But you can emulate that. You can act as if you had a greater 
aware of the emptiness of self than you really do. It's not hard to figure out how to act that way. Right? And you might not always succeed. That's all right, too. The force of your past conditioning is something that you can't necessarily alter in the present. You can alter it in the future, whether that future is five minutes from now or five months from now. What you do now alters what it is in the future. But what it is right now comes from the past, and you can't change that. But what you have to work with is, is, the, future, is, is the present and the present changes the future, okay? So you don't blame yourself for the fact that you might still act out of selfish motivations no matter how hard you try not to. Mm -hmm. You just keep trying not to until you succeed. But what you're going to do is you're going to succeed a lot. And you're going to succeed more and more as time goes by. And in this whole process of examining the causes of your dissatisfactions and the causes of your behaviors, your understanding of the role that your attachment to self and your attachment to beliefs that things are the way your mind tells you that they are, you're going to, it's going to become clearer and clearer the role that this plays in your unhappiness, your dissatisfaction, uh, your unwholesome actions. And the easier it is going to be to change those views and those attitudes and those behaviors. And the result of that is the happier that you're going to be and the more beneficial effects you're going to have on others, the more you're going to find yourself surrounded by other people who also are displaying more wisdom than you ever thought they really could more positive and wholesome behavior than you gave them credit for in the past. It would be a spreading effect. So, yes? Just that last point. So you're saying just through your behavior? Through, through which? Just through your behavior and the way you engage with people, you're saying that, that you'll see more wisdom in them because you actually foster more wise behavior in them? Is that what you mean? You will. We are all connected. We all respond to... Uh, the people around us, their attitudes and their behaviors. That's why it's so important to associate with noble companions. Because you may not realize it, but you are, I mean, part of your not being the separate self that you feel like you are is that you are mirroring the collective attitudes and behaviors that you're exposed to by your companions at all the time. And what you do, the, the, your attitudes and your behaviors are going to impact other people. <clears throat> and you're going to have a positive effect even on people who don't understand any of these Dharma ideas at all. The reason is that everyone has this Buddha nature. Oh boy, that's a big step that I've taken there, right? <laughs> but it's true that we all do. All of these truths are things that at some level 
everyone already knows. Yes? I would like to bring up something in relation to that. I couldn't sleep last night with all this information from the teaching lines. I thought about my life again, which I do often at night, and um, how much I can embrace the Buddhist path, how much it brought already into my life since I practice, and how much benefits and everything. And I also know that if I have not involved, had not involved myself in my life when I was younger in all kinds of really uh, attachments, involvement with all senses, pursuing things, finding, searching, I would not be here. So my question is in terms of we are, most of us uh, maybe are born with the Buddha nature, but we are not wise yet, including right. Leonard Cohen, you know, you talked right. yesterday. So is Bud the Buddhist past then really what you say as a teacher is really a, a phase after we have done it kind of yeah. thing, moving on and finding that wisdom? How would you teach young people then who mm -hmm. need to involve themselves, right? How, how would you teach them? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> the wisdom comes usually if it comes yeah. with age, too, right? That's right. Yeah. And right. so I was struggling with it. I would not want to give up anything what I experienced, mm -hmm. but I'm very happy to, to, uh, to arrive now here. Right. Without it, I would not know if I would have been here. Well, that's true. And it's good to keep that in mind, that there is a, a sense in which everybody is where they need to be. The question is, how long do they need to stay there? <laughs> but uh, and how do you how do you teach young people? By example is really important. Young people learn so much from observation. Um, not they are not nearly as dependent upon what we tell them and what we formally teach, which is a um, which is a good thing because, you know, uh, we don't spend nearly enough time communicate our, communicating our wisdom to young people. So, uh, and that's, that's sort of what I'm saying, that if you're following this path, you're going to be an example to everyone who comes in contact with you. But young people are especially open to that because this is, this is one of the main ways by which that they're, alert, they're learning, they're assimilating so much. But you you can't uh, you can't neglect also the you know the other forms of, of teaching and learning as well. But young people do need they do need to work out their own karma. Yeah. And they at whatever point you encounter a young person, they already have a history. They already have a conditioning. They have a certain amount of conditioning that they came into this life with and a certain amount of conditioning that they have accumulated uh, as a part of this life. And so that's where they are right now. Just the same as with you, you know, in each moment. You are where you are as well. But, but where, where a child goes, how they will evolve personally, just as with any of us adults, is not something that is preordained and fixed. If it would, this would all be futile, wouldn't it? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so. Yes? Um, well, going along with that, um, you know, I'm older now, and I, 
yeah, I'm glad that I've done what I've done and that's how I got here. But on the other hand, part of me wishes that I had done this sooner, when I had less strong conditioning. If I had pursued this in my 20s, and I mean, I still could have had a, a very full life, and I feel like I've had a full life, um, but I feel like I could have done it in a, a you know more conscious way. So, I mean, there are two sides of the story. We're here because of what's happened to us in our past, but I also think if you're young, take the opportunity now, you know, to, to work with your mind and your brain while it's young and, and much more flexible than um, perhaps it will be when you're older. So that's just another side of that same story. Yes, you're right, Peggy. I agree with you totally, and I agree with Hannah totally. I look at my own life, and on the one hand, there are many things that I wish I had done differently, you know, including the way that I approached this path. On the other hand, I look at my life and I can recognize very clearly that I couldn't have. As much as, you know, as much as I look back and say, I wish I had done this differently, I look at who I was and what my conditioning was in that point in time, and I can say, well, I, I can see that it was my karma unfolding. That's why I reacted and that's why that's why I made the choices I did. But but you know, it didn't have to happen that way. And it's not that I came into this world and that I was going to have to go through all of the things I did and I was going to have to mistake make all the mistakes I did. The entire process evolved every step along the way. And at every step, you know, there were an infinite number of possible futures. There was only one possible present, but an infinite number of possible futures. But I don't hold myself at fault for being what uh, I was, because there's no one to hold at fault for it. I am a process. And I, the process that I am is a part of a much larger process. As a matter of fact, it's all process. This body and mind are not, they don't have the qualities of thingness that my mind attributes to them. They are only process, and they are part of process. But, but, but I don't see that just negative, like I wish I would have done different. I mm -hmm. have done things I, I don't want, I, exactly. I just don't want to miss. That yeah. was immen immensely important for me, most mm -hmm. of it actually. But mm -hmm. I, I studied Hindu philosophy a lot, and there's this saying like, you have first to build up an ego before you can transcend it. You have first to build up a self before you let go. <laughs> so the things, that's what I did. And, yeah. and I had great mm -hmm. uh, fun with that, was success yeah. and lots of suffering too. But yeah. the thing is, I don't regret anything of that. Mm -hmm. I, I, my question is more towards the phases. Um, if I would have a young daughter or a young son, would I tell him or her, go involve yourself in the world as much as you can with all your senses and then see where it leads you with the background of, you know, as conscious as you can, as mindful as you can, as compassionate as you can. Mm -hmm. I was not brought up this way. Mm -hmm. But I would probably want to teach that my children. Uh, but the wisdom of really experiencing it mm -hmm. comes later. Mm -hmm. I, I would agree with that. You know, I, 
I'm not disagreeing with you. I don't really think that Peggy is either. I think what we're reckoning, you know, you cannot be your children. And one of the problems that parents make is that we, is that we either want our children to follow the path we did, or else we want our children to go completely different <laughs> way. And you know, but the thing is that our children are different beings, and they have to go their way. And to the degree that which we can uh, guide them and advise them. Uh, and spare them some of the mistakes and suffering we went through. That's wonderful. But we also cannot be attached to it because no matter how much we would like to spare our child a particular kind of suffering, and no matter how clearly we can see the results of the path they're heading down, if that's what they need to do, then that's what they need to do. And at the end of it, you know, they may look back and uh, they may... They may see it either of the two ways we're talking about, or they may see it both ways at the same time. Mm-hmm. They may say, I can see that I had to do that because I wouldn't be the one that I am today if I didn't. But on the other hand, it would be nice if I didn't have to go through that. <laughs> so. Could we, um, I'm, I'm still interested in the topic of enlightenment. Yeah. (laughs) So I, you know, I I think this all kind of connects. It does connect, but we can get more specifically to the point. That's good. Um, I'm looking here because this struck me yesterday that um, on the very first page when you're talking about what an enlightened person is like and. Um, you say they have a deep sense of relaxation that arises from an understanding that there's nowhere else to go and nothing else to do. And um, uh, so, I'm, so it's sort of a paradox, a little mm-hmm. bit of a paradox, because uh, and I. I think the natural great perfection, are you familiar with that term? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, like you can experience that and see that sometimes for little windows. And then um, and then we get back into our mm-hmm. daily struggle. And um, can you talk about that? <laughs> like, why, why do we have, I mean, I know that it's just like this compulsion. It isn't a compulsion, isn't it, John, to want to make things be mm-hmm. better? It is, absolutely. It is a compulsion. Uh, <coughs> and it's an obsession. A compulsion, obsession, yes. This, one of the things that is the difference between a worldling and an enlightened being is that a worldling is driven by compulsions. These are built-in, non-rational mechanisms that make us do things and make us uh, desire change and make us take actions to bring about change. But they're not coming from a place of wisdom. They are compulsions. 
They're, they're coming from a different part of our being. And that's why the things that we do and even the goals that we aspire to are sometimes good, but often not. And the actions that we take are uh, sometimes okay, but they're often, you know, there would be much better ways that we could go about things. So acting out of compulsion is the nature of a worldling. Mm -hmm. Acting out of wisdom and compassion is the nature of a Buddha. And an enlightened being who is not yet a Buddha is somewhere between those two. To the degree that we still experience desire and aversion, we still experience compulsion to want change. But to the degree that we have overcome desire and aversion, we are capable of bringing about change on the basis of our wisdom and our compassion. You see what I'm saying, the difference? And a very important part of this is, you know, I've said it over again a few times, and I think you've all got it, but see how it fits into this, is that you accept the present. Where I am right now is where I am right now. What's happening right now, okay, right, I'm in a concentration camp, those people are getting gas, they're getting machine gun, you know, I'm getting beat. This is where I am now. This is what I have to work with. I'm in my mansion in Malibu. I can see the sailboats out on the water and the sun's shining. And, yeah. Wherever you are is wherever you are. Right? The future is... That's, that's what can be changed, not the present. And the only way that it can be changed is on the basis of where you are right now and what's happening right now as the present moment evolves. Mm -hmm. And that's what it means to say that there is no place else to be and nothing else to do. And compare that with how you are so often in your life. In any given day, how many times are you in one place doing one thing and your mind is wanting to be somewhere else and doing something different. And to the degree that that's happening, how effective are you in the present moment? How well do you even know and experience the present moment? Uh, And keep in mind that that's all right, because we're we're not at a place yet where it can be completely different than that. But we we don't have to resign ourselves that we're always going to be in that place. And we can try to bring ourselves in the present moment. Wherever you are in life, this is this is your path. It's your path for today. It will be different tomorrow. The one thing you can be certain of is that it will change. Nothing will ever stay the same. But wherever you find yourself, that's the garden for you to be working in. You know? Um, and if you're working for your own enlightenment, for the sake of other beings, then 
you don't say, oh, well, this is the wrong place. Where you are is the right place. It's right here and now that this is where we need to do our work. And when we find ourselves through, uh, through craving, not being able to be present and not being able to work where we are, then we recognize that. And we say, aha, there's the problem. Okay. You know, and it may continue to be a problem. But I'm not going to be ignorant of it. I'm going to see how it's affecting me. And I'm going to use my mindful awareness to change this so that it is no longer the problem. You know, the the formula that all dukkha, dissatisfaction, is the result of craving. You know, it, it is so <coughs> direct and clear and profound. It's it's the compulsion that you're talking about to want things to be different than what they are, which causes the present moment to be dissatisfactory. Right, the deep dissatisfaction. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just like inherent. It is, yeah, absolutely. It's inherent. It's, it's, it's inherent because it's, it's the motor that we were born with to make us go. And you can, and you have every faith that you can. Well, and th- this is a really a, yeah. That. <laughs> that, that's right. And you yeah, you can't believe in enlightenment since a, since an enlightened being has completely overcome craving. You can't believe that enlightenment is possible until you can see how it's possible to function without craving, and that's not an easy thing. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion of that. There, uh, there have been a lot of things written about that. And, uh, and people who think about this, and you know, they examine themselves and they examine the, and they say, well, I don't see how this can work. I don't see how a being can be free from craving and survive in the world. And there is a myth that is very widespread in the Buddhist countries of the world. It says, when a person reaches the stage of the non-returners, overcome all desire and aversion for the world. You know, the the myth says if if a person achieves the stage of a non-returner, if he doesn't take robes and enter a monastery, within 24 hours he won't survive. That is literally the belief. I, you know, I, I can show you books where it says that. You know. Now, this is this is not this is not wisdom. This is misconception, but it's showing you that the ordinary person who thinks deeply about this can easily come to the conclusion that well, it's not possible. You you know, if you if that really happened, if you had no desire at all. You couldn't. You couldn't survive. There's even a person that I know who uh, is is not third path, but hey, he is uh, he is beyond the stream entry. And this is what he said. He said, uh, "I can't imagine that there, there would be a, a Buddha or that any being could." be completely free of uh, desire and aversion. And part of what I gave you there was my reply to him. 
you know, if you read the things. It is difficult to understand. And it can, at some point or another, become an obstacle to you. You become, you will discover that you're attached to your craving. I mean, I've had this craving all of my life. And everything I've ever done has been been directed by this craving. It's been the motor and the rudder that steered my boat through the world. And you, def- you can find yourself at a point where I'm afraid to give it up because then I'll be lost in the... I'll, I'll, I'll just be lost, you know. I'll, I'll be in the Sargasso Sea of the Spirit with no wind and no current, you know. Lost forever. It's not the case, though. <laughs> isn't, isn't there a real danger... I struggle with the concept of looking at the world as this place that is absolutely overbrimming with suffering. Yes. My world isn't. I mean, yes, there, that stuff exists. Mm-hmm. And there are kittens and puppies and babies and sunsets and sailboats and, and laughter and a whole lot of wonderful, beautiful things mm-hmm. that I... On some level, it feels like a myopic view to me when, when to focus on, on, on the pain and, and, and the illusion. Um, there are also, there's so much good stuff. Mm-hmm. It, it's good. You know, it, it's like some people see the world as a scary, dangerous place, and mm-hmm. some people see the world as a funny, fun place. And, mm-hmm. uh, and it's the same world, mm-hmm. kind of, I guess. That's emptiness. The way we see the world is the experiences we have, every experience you have, is a result of your conditioning. It's a result of your karma. It is a product of your mind. You know, two people can stand in exactly the same place, side by side, and everything that they see and feel and hear is ostensibly the same. But one is saying, oh, it's so wonderful. And the other is in a state of abject misery and sees only the ugliness. So, you, when you say, well, my world is filled with uh, puppies and sunsets and... Also. Yeah. That's your good karma. And when you see all the suffering when you experience your own suffering, that's your bad karma. Or good, bad, whatever. It's your karma. Whatever you see is the result of your conditioning, your past conditioning. How your mind has been programmed to create the reality that you're in in the moment. And you and I and another person can receive the same sensory input and interpret it in completely different ways. But it doesn't even happen that way. You and I and another person have hugely more sensory input available to us in every instant than we actually take in and process to create our reality. So we're not even we're not even in the same place at the same time, although it seems like we are. Mm-hmm. Because you are 
selecting certain parts of the experience to attend to, and, and each of us is, is selectively attending to different parts of the experience, and then we are interpreting it, and then we are having an experience. It may be a good experience, and we would say that's a result of your good karma, but it's only your good karma because the experience you're having as a result is good. I mean, you know, that's what's the difference between good karma and bad karma? You know, it's if it's conditioned you in such a way that you are having a positive experience, then for you it's good. <laughs> and if it's bad, for you it's bad. You know, it's, it, that is the that is the axis of relevance that our our conditioning and the results of our conditioning manifest along. But rather than being in this, you see, most of us uh, don't know what's going on. And we feel like we're powerless in the face of, of the experiences that life presents. So we envy the person who seems to be having a happy life. You know, and uh, we feel really sorry for the person that seems to have a, have a, a, a terrible life. And then for ourselves, uh, when we have a bad time, we say, oh, why is this happening to me? And when we're having a good time, we say, we don't say anything about it other than, wow, isn't this great? I'm glad this is happening, right? And the assumption is that, that this is all due to some kind of power or process or something that's outside of ourselves. The important thing is discovering that it's not. It's not, you know. Every bad experience you've ever had has been due to your own conditioning. You know, that's hard to believe. I know, it's hard to believe. But uh, one thing that I found—it's it, such an extreme example—that it's helpful to look at, just because it can, it can at least shake somewhat that certainty that you have that, that experience is dependent upon circumstances. And that's some of the stories of the Holocaust survivors and their events. I mean, some people had true, profound spiritual transformation in the midst of such horror. You know. And uh, they're very educated and literate people who are able to write and communicate that very clearly. And it's, you know, it, it just, it does illustrate that external circumstances don't have nearly the, the power that we assume that they do. Yeah. I can, I can understand that from the point of view of, of one. But when mm-hmm. other people, like your children, are involved. Yeah. How do you, how do you digest that? I mean, how do you how do you relate to that? Something. I mean, if you're a Holocaust survivor, whose whose who's child was killed mm-hmm. in in the Holocaust, how do you? You know, I, I can understand you undergoing that transformation yourself yeah. when your loved ones are. Yeah. You know, are suffering to that degree. How do you relate to that? Well, how you relate to that? 
is going to depend upon your conditioning and your karma and the, in the moment that you're trying to relate to it. And, you know, we talked about this the other night with regard to the suffering that's happening in Haiti. And until, you know, like I said earlier, until you are a Buddha, until you reach the top of the mountain, you're not really going to be able to fully comprehend. But you need, in the present moment, to come as close to as close to that understanding as you possibly can. Um, which is which is why it's it can be helpful to. Uh, to share the stories of people who have been through that kind of experience, to just get some some idea of uh, of how it can be dealt with. But yes, we we love our children, and we love the people around us, and um, we are in sympathy to their suffering. We suffer when they suffer. This is part of self-identification. Uh, I don't know whether you can see that, but what we do, you know, our mind constructs a self, and then we suffer when certain kinds of things happen to that self, in the same way that we experience pleasure when certain kinds of things happen to that self. And we have children, we expand the notion of self to include the children. And the things that happen to them, now, we react to from that same identification of selfhood. And at the very least, that you can see, if, if you can see that that's what's happening when it's happening, it will, it will give you a greater understanding of basically every time you suffer, you know, that's what I said earlier. When there is suffering, then there is there is some unwholesome mental attitude that lies at the root of that. And uh, that there is an attachment to self that is, is feeding the energy into that. So, I'm not suggesting that if some terrible thing happens to your child that you are not going to experience suffering as a result of that. But that is an opportunity for you, like every other occasion that you experience suffering, it is an opportunity for you to acquire a little more wisdom and to see a little more deeply into it, to to use uh, to use these Dharma principles that you've learned to acquire a little bit deeper understanding. To the degree that you'd be able to do that, the suffering may be moderated by, posit- by, by some positive uh, perceptions that will now accompany the painful perceptions that you have. And, but you see, it's not, it's not saying something different than I already have. 
The experience that you're having in the moment is the result of your past conditioning. So your mind is constructing the experience based on that conditioning, and it is constructing it in such a way that you are experiencing suffering. If you can understand how that comes about, then there comes about the possibility for change. Um, we hurt when our children hurt because this creates the compulsion for us to do something, if it's possible to do something, to remedy the situation. And this is, this is our history. We are animals programmed by our nature to act out of compulsion to serve certain ends. And you know, we have inherited that. Like some some animals eat their babies. And that's usually because they produce way too many babies for the amount of resources that's available. And so it's conducive to the survival of the babies they don't eat if they eat all the others. Other organisms produce very few babies and invest huge energy into nurturing and survival. And so they have a different kind of compulsion. You're not, you don't have the compulsion to eat your babies. You have the compulsion to suffer and act because, uh, because that's going to contribute to your small number of offspring surviving better. Okay. Now, of course, that doesn't help because you are still the being that you are conditioned biologically and karmically as you are. So you're going to experience suffering. That's right. But now, try to see deeper into that. Try to see beyond that. Try to learn what you can from it. And accept that, yes, this is the kind of being that I am. And yes, I'm going to suffer any time my child suffers. And accept that. But don't resign yourself to that as being the only way that you can be. And it should be obvious that you don't need suffering to be able to take action to relieve the suffering and protect your child. It's not necessary. It's there, but it's not essential. Because you have a completely different capacity than maybe another kind of, uh, of, of being does. You have a kind of intelligence, understanding, wisdom that allows you to act in an appropriate way and produce a desirable result, right? So you don't need this primitive mechanism that's, that's offering in you, operating in you. And this is the same principle we're talking about. In, in your entire life, in everybody's entire life, we are driven by these compulsions. We don't need to be driven by these compulsions. We are intelligent. We possess some degree of wisdom. The Buddha nature is there within us. We can develop those, and as we develop those, we can let go of the compulsion. And that's the part that we have to learn to be able to believe and accept. You know, do you believe it is possible? Is such a thing as enlightenment possible? Well, it depends. What do you mean by enlightenment? Well, enlightenment is being free of all the compulsions of, of craving, desire, and aversion. And so here you're coming to the question, well, 
I mean, you've just asked in a different form. Is it possible to be in a state that's free of suffering, craving, and aversion? Okay, do you, thank you for that. Can I just say something about that? Because, um, and it's about the movie Avatar. <laughs> I don't know if anybody's seen it, I've seen it three times. Um, but I can't help but think of one of the elements that it makes extraordinarily graphic, and that is our indelible, intrinsic interconnectedness. And they suffer greatly, the people on this planet suffer greatly, not this planet, but the other planet. Well, this one too. This one, this one too. <laughs> right, right. But the movie, in its all its magnificence, shows the web of life on all levels. And so when there is death, there is this, this recognition, this tangible merging. So in the case of a child, um, no longer in our midst, um, as they experience death, the, the mother tree and as the, the, the sacred tree. Um, gosh, you know, it, I think it depicted something that's very real. You know, it made it graphic. Well, it's, yeah, some of these things can trigger the arising of wisdom in us. Not, they won't necessarily have the same effect on everybody, but. That's right. Yes. <laughs> Yeah.